our conversation about My Fair Lady, we know, has destroyed the show for more, more than one person. This is the Gospel of Musical Theatre, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals, with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theatre Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Welcome to the Gospel According to Musical Theatre. My name is Nathan LaRude. I'm the Dean of Trinity Cathedral in downtown Portland, Oregon. And Peter Elliott here from Vancouver, British Columbia, where I'm a, a retired priest in private practice as a coach and former Dean of Christchurch Cathedral, Vancouver, British Columbia. And it's because we're both deans that Nathan and I met a few years ago at, we have annual conferences uh, that are uh, described often as the best parties in the Anglican communion. <laughs> what, yeah, what have we decided? What is the collective noun form for deans? I what are you a drunk? A, a drunk, a drunk of deans. <laughs> yes, we get together with our drunk of deans uh, once a, once a year or twice a year, and uh, small small it's gatherings. It's a larger, great conference. It's a great yeah, conference, yeah. and yeah, and we yeah. we have a couple kind of smaller colleague groups. Just us uh, Cascadia deans get together on occasion with our our, our uh, fellows in Victoria, BC, and in. Uh, in Seattle. Um, mm. Yes, the Dean, the Dean Connection has become the Musical Theatre Connection. And the Musical Theatre Connection. And today we're going to begin a conversation about My Fair Lady. We probably, we may not get through it in one, in one time because there's we so much not. to talk about. But I, as we are just getting ready to, to record today, I said to Nathan, I think we should probably do a, um, a warning, an audience warning our conversation about My Fair Lady, we know, has destroyed the show for more than one person. So if this is a show you love and you don't want to think critically about it, you probably want to turn this podcast off right now. And I love the show. Yeah, and I so think do Nathan I. does too. So do we I. both love it. But, but. Yeah. Uh, we and really that's, some things. that's yeah. fair warning to every every show that we cover on this podcast right like if you if you love the show and thinking about its problems is going to ruin it for you i mean fair enough right there's stuff that i don't want ruined for me that i just want to enjoy at the level right. of popular entertainment and i don't want to think critically about it there's sometimes i think like my ability to do that is a function of my privilege as a cisgendered white person in america um but fair enough right like sometimes we just want to enjoy ourselves and not think critically about it my fair lady is a show that as you say we both Adore. I grew up loving My Fair Lady. Did you? Did you I too? Love My Fair Lady too. Yeah, Absolutely. it was. It was my. It was a piece of my Julie Andrews kind of gateway drug to all things queer, all things musical, <laughs> all things British. She was my. She was my gateway drug and continues to be my drug of choice. But yeah, fell in love with the score. Fell in love with the show. The world that it creates. This very stylized Cecil Beaton costumed world of Edwardian England. I mean, it's it's a. The film never really grabbed me. I was always very loyal to Julie Andrews, kind of against Audrey Hepburn. So I've, I've still got a little bit of a bone to pick with Audrey Hepburn. I know it was not her fault. She, she said yes to the role. She's actually quite good in the role. She just can't sing and they dub her badly. That's not her fault. Um, but yes, my, my deep loyalty to Julie Andrews maintains, sort of sustains my deep love of My Fair Lady. And as you say, we have, we have been told when we've taught this show that we have ruined it for people. And that's, that's a little hard for us to hear because yeah. that's not yeah. our, that's not our aim. It's not the intention, but just thought it was fair warning. So yeah. the title actually comes from the little nursery rhyme, London Bridge is falling down. And it was also uh, my fair lady at the end mm -hmm. of that thing. And it was also an alternate title that George Bernard Shaw, who wrote 
the play that my fair lady wrote the play Pygmalion right. on which my fair lady is based uh, had uh, as a working title before he chose Pygmalion. That. Is that, is that mm-hmm. how Lerner and Lowe came to, I've always wondered where that title came from, but that's. Yeah. 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 They, they, in their research, they found that he had actually considered it at one huh. point and went with Pygmalion homage to Ovid's metamorphosis, where the story is a sculptor, whose name is Pygmalion. Mm-hmm. So the Pygmalion refers really to Henry Higgins, to, not, yeah, to not to Eliza. Uh, the sculptor is Pygmalion. And the sculptor Pygmalion falls in love with a statue of his creation of a perfect woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the sort of mythological the mm-hmm. uh, roots of the thing. What, and what happens in what happens in Ovid? It's it's Galatea, right? That's the that's the creature I that he I think so. I think so. And I don't remember how the story goes. I don't remember if I, but I think it's a tragedy, right? Like he falls in love I think with so. and then like they bring her to life and bad things ha- like I don't think it's I think a, so. Yeah. It's a it's a warning yeah. story as much as it is anything it's, else, it, right? It, yeah, yeah. 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 And it's really about, you know, if you had perfection. Yeah. Would you really love it? Would like, you really want that? Yeah. Would you, and, and kind of at a deeper level, if you really got what you really wanted, would you be happy? Yeah. Oh, um, and what a great theological question that is, isn't it? Like, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And a Absolutely. good one for thinking about, I mean, musicals generally, but in, especially My Fair Lady, which is sometimes described as the the perfect example of the integrated musical, right? It's kind of like this project that we've been tracing in this course from Oklahoma, you know, through the kind of musicals of Rodgers and Hammerstein, according to some critics, really reaches its perfection in My Fair Lady in terms of the integrated show, right? Every song comes directly out of character action. It moves the plot forward. It's uh, it's structure, structurally perfect. That's the way that Absolutely. some critics want to talk about My Fair Lady. And I think that that question at the heart of it, right? Like if you got everything you wanted, what would happen? I mean, my Fair Lady in some ways really defines the I want paradigm, right? It gives you yes. two characters right at the outset and they both get an almost textbook example of an I want song, especially Eliza, yeah. right? Uh, all, all I want, all is, I want a is a room. She says it in the lyrics, right? Yeah. All I want is a room somewhere far away from the cold night air with one enormous chair. And that, then the, the next line, someone's head resting on my knee, right? So from the very outset, yeah. Eliza has already defined herself as like, I don't want to rest my head on someone's knee. I want someone to rest their head on my knee. I think that's really significant in terms of understanding where she strong, goes. Strong, strong woman. Yep. I, am, I do not want to be the plaything of a man, but I do right. want companionship. And in some ways, like she wants to be the dominant partner, right? Like I want, yes. I want a man to trust me enough to lay his head on my knee as a, as a boy would on his mother's lap. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's not a conventional, I want to get married and have a guy take care of me narrative. From the very beginning, right. she's defining herself in some ways against the gender expectations of her world which I think is really, so, I mean, we learn just about everything we need to know about Eliza Doolittle almost in that song. It's such a perfect I want song. All I want is a room somewhere Far away from the cold night air With one enormous chair Wouldn't it be lovely? Lots of chocolate for me to eat Lots of cola making lots of it. Warm face, warm hands, warm feet. Wouldn't it be lovely? Oh, so lovely sitting absolutely still. 
And then yeah. Higgins gets, why can't the English teach their children how to speak? Which, yeah, I mean, is it an, I, I want to say that's an I want song, but in a, yeah. in a different kind of way. Yeah, yeah. It sets him up as the uh, elocutionist um, teacher of language that he is, and also as a, um, a nitpicking, persnickety, mm-hmm. cynical, eccentric professorial yeah. snobbish uh, misogynist snobbish. how many bad uh-huh. words can we use to describe <laughs> uh, henry higgins you know yeah yeah he's and, a piece and, of work but 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 what he's i mean if it's an i want song i think it is echoing back to that central question of the pygmalion myth right what what henry higgins wants is perfection he wants yeah. his fellow english people to teach their children how to speak with perfection he wants uh, class distinctions to disappear through the power of dialect and you know like that in, in English society his his theory would be the way that we uh, maintain this very stratified society in terms of class is by speaking patterns and if we could teach everybody to speak correctly those class distinctions would disintegrate we can ask is that like you know what's the nature of that theory but that's I mean that's what he wants right in some ways it's a, actually it's a very progressive agenda I want to erase privilege distinctions because right. everybody will teach as an upper as an upper class British person should. Right. I want perfection. And more particularly, right, then this becomes the project when Pickering says, well, you can't teach this flower girl how to teach correctly. And Higgins is seized with the ability actually to accomplish what he desires. It's a Pygmalion myth. Right. I can take this unformed clay, this completely, you know, this this thing. And Eliza is a thing for him, right? She has no, she has no history, she has no backstory, she has no wants, desires, anything. She is just clay in his hand. And his attempt to create, in some ways, the perfect woman, from from the perspective of a deeply misogynist, we might say probably gay or at least very queer oriented uh, guy. Yes. So they, I mean, we we that's actually, this is actually how you and I first kind of got involved in this this project. We were talking about Pickering and and Higgins and the drag phenomenon at the center of My yes. Fair Lady. They create a drag a drag character. Eliza is their sort of drag doll. Um, this yeah. fantasy, a two gay men's fantasy version of what a, what a woman should be. And then as in the, as in the Pygmalion myth, right? The Galatea, the, the perfect creation rebels, right? She is not actually, she's a person. She has wants, desires, feelings, and she ultimately turns on her creators. It's, like, it's almost yeah. a kind of a Frankenstein story in that sense. Yeah, and, and two thoughts. One is um, we're very much in the world of George Bernard Shaw, who loves to speechify. I mean, his plays are filled with characters breaking the fourth wall, addressing the audience directly with his agenda of equality and social rights and all that sort of stuff. And it was L the, the cover art of the, of the album, the LP mm-hmm. that was a bestseller from the get go was uh, drawn by the great Al Hirschfield. Mm-hmm. And it's a picture of, those of you who know it can imagine it as we speak, George Bernard Shaw in the sky, kind of like a god figure, 
with a, a marionette puppeteer and Rex Harrison, Henry Higgins uh, is being controlled by Shaw. Mm -hmm. And in turn, Henry Higgins is controlling Eliza Doolittle. And it's brilliant cover art. I think it's etched in all musical theater fans' imagination. It's become kind of the iconic My Fair Lady image, right? Yeah, with different actors' faces. Two things about it. I mean, uh, number one, it is it's uh, an image that we can use, and I don't think it, that today's podcast the way to to look at it to do it. Well, we might get into it a bit. Uh, God and clergy and the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, there really is in some people's operative theology, like God controls the priests, right. who then. Control the people. Uh, control the people. Yeah. Uh, and uh, neither Nathan nor I have that <laughs> theological image in our mind about the church and ministry. Yeah, we try not to do that, although sometimes <laughs> systems sometimes <laughs> systems do play you in certain ways and the expect people's expectations end up kind of dominating. But yes, that's right. That's a that's a, a way of understanding the nature of God and the nature of church that I think you and I have worked my, my my short career, your longer career, trying to dismantle yeah. for people and, yeah. and, and and trying to help the church shift out of that model, both of God and of clergy and human systems, right? That this is actually, yeah. because I think, and this is maybe where you were going with this, this idea, there is this kind of baked in misogyny to that idea that the My Fair Lady poster illustrates beautifully, right? God yeah. is a man with a white beard who happens to look yes. like George Bernard Shaw up in the clouds, yeah. controlling the men of the world, right? Controlling Rex Harrison in this very manipulative kind of way, right? Like, and that therefore Rex Harrison's job or the man's job is to manipulate women, control women in the same way that God, this is, I mean, and this is a a schematic of of Christian family values that at least in the States, we still find to this day, right? Amy Amy Barrett, Amy Coney Barrett, our new Supreme Court justice comes out of this tradition, right? She, as a a teenager, devoted herself to this movement in the Catholic church that seeks to establish the male as the head of the household, as God is head of the church. This is quoting from St. Paul. Um, So it's a, I mean, it's a framing of Christian family life, of church life, of governmental life that bears a lot of power. I mean, in certainly in, in American society, I think in Canadian society too. And Canadians, sure. Uh, European society as well. Yeah. I mean, the the whole notion. The the other though, just to redeem it, and then to get into the the text of this extraordinary show and its wonderful songs, is in the same way that uh, Pickering dares Higgins to do what you can. I hear. Uh, little echoes of the book of Job hmm. with, uh, uh, with God being provoked by Satan to oh, here is this man, Job, uh-huh. and throw your worst at him. And if he remains faithful, then you are God. Now, huh. it, slightly different, but just a kind yeah. of interesting inversion of, uh, I mean, is in some ways pickering kind of the devil's in the him. tempter it's voice a, yeah it's a tempter voice oh that's what can interesting, you Peter. do yeah what can you do with this flower girl professor higgins yeah if you are so good at what you do well and what an interesting way to think about eliza as the job figure in the story right so not the cinderella figure the the symbol of everything you know the of everything that George Bernard Shaw wants to say about women, everything that Alan J. Lerner wants to say about women, everything that Henry Higgins wants to say about women, but as a kind of a Job figure, someone who is so put upon and yet remains faithful 
to something, not to Henry Higgins, right? Like that's not her yeah. God. If, but there is, I mean, it's, it's her I want song, right? Like I am worth something. I have yeah. values. My desires deserve to be put out into the world. And I, uh, I have every right to go and chase them to the degree that is possible to me as a woman in this society. I mean, like that she, yeah, that she's hanging on to some deep truth and is a, kind of like it, like the Job story, right? Like will not settle for anybody's bromide version of what she should settle for which is what happens in the Job story, right? All of Job's friends come to try to explain to Job what's, oh yeah, God's really not that bad. And, and Job will not settle for, I mean, you know, like God is doing this to me. I want my, I want my time in court with God to defend my case. Uh, he, yeah. Job, Job will not rest until he has his chance to defend his case with God. And that's kind of Eliza. Right. She will not rest until she has a chance to, I mean, you think about all of, all of other than, I mean, she gets, you know, all I want is a room somewhere. Her, I want song, which is charming and lovely. She gets, um, I could have danced all night, which maybe we'll talk about in a little bit, but then at least in the second act, like Eliza's moments of song are basically prompted by anger, right? She, she sings, just you wait, Henry Higgins. She sings, show me to Henry, uh, to, to Freddie Andred Hill, right? Like, I don't want to hear about your love, like prove it to me. And she sings, um, without you also, like most of her songs about Higgins are expressions of vitriol and anger. That's actually true of Higgins too, right? Most of his music is why can't X, Y, or Z be true? Why can't a woman be more like a man? Why can't the English teach their children how to speak? I mean, his, his, what, what prompts Higgins as a character to sing is frustration and anger. Um, that's mostly their motivating. It's not actually very often love that motivates these two characters. It's anger. Yes, why can't a woman be more like a man? Men are so honest, so thoroughly square, eternally noble, historically fair, who when you win will always give your back a pat? Well, why can't a woman be like that? Why does everyone do what the others do? Can't a woman learn to use her head? Why do they do everything their mothers do? Why don't they grow up? Well, like their father instead. Why can't a woman be more like a man? Men are so pleasant, so easy to please. Whenever you're with them, you're always at ease. Would you be slighted if I didn't speak for hours? Of course not. Would you be livid if I had a drink or two? Nonsense. Would you be wounded if I never sent you flowers? Never. Well, why can't a woman be like you? One man in a million may shout a bit. Now and then there's one with slight defects. One perhaps whose truthfulness you doubt a bit, but by and large we are a marvelous sex. Why can't a woman behave like a man? Men are so friendly, good-natured and kind. A better companion you never will find. If I were hours late for dinner, would you bellow? Of course not. If I forgot your silly birthday, would you fuss? Nonsense. Would you complain if I took out another fellow? Never. Well, why can't a woman be like us? Yeah, and, and I think folks go to the theater to see a love story. Yeah. And it is, it kind of turns out to be a love story. Well, does yeah, it? does it? Yeah. I mean, there certainly is the infatuation of Freddie for Eliza. Yes. Right. That's clear. That's really the only a, recognizable love story in the thing, right? Like, I mean, he's Freddie, a bit of adult. He's, you know, yeah, he's mean, kind of besotted. He's, and, yeah. and there again, kind of as all the other men in the story, right? Like he sees uh, a symbol, Eliza. She represents something for him. She's unconventional. She, you know, she says whatever she thinks. He's charmed by her, but not the real her. He's charmed by some fantasy version that he has built right. of her. And that's, and that's right. what she attacks, right? Like, I don't want you yeah. to talk of love, moons, junes, bullshit. If you're in love, show me. 
right? Like prove it to me. What I want is someone's head resting on my knee. And at a certain level, you think Eliza has figured out (laughs) Freddie is that guy. That's actually what George Bernard saw said about it, right? He became so frustrated by people who wanted to turn Henry and Eliza into the big romantic couple at the center of the show. And he says, absolutely not. Right? Like Eliza has two options in front of her. She can either fetch slippers for the rest of her life for this tyrant, or she can have someone who will fetch her slippers for her. Which one do you think she's going to choose? Obviously. And he said, she marries Freddie. They end up opening a flower shop. She dominates him his entire life. That is what she wanted. And she gets it. Don't try to make Higgins and Eliza into the romantic couple. They are not. The romantic couple, if Higgins is involved in one at all, is either his relationship with his mother. <laughs> Which is what Eliza says, right? Like she's entirely besotted <laughs> yeah. by his mother. Yeah. Or, or really this with Pickering. Pickering. I mean, they move in together before Eliza. They live yeah. together. And that uh, the terrible song, it's a fabulous song, but the lyrics are terrible. A hymn to him, the, you, you, you referenced it just a moment like ago. A yeah. Why can't a woman be more? And he says, why can't a woman, to Pickering, be more be like, like you? you? Exactly. <laughs> Would you be mad at me if I never came home? Do you care if I leave my stuff all over the house? Like, you and I have this great relationship where we can just, like, kind of coexist as, I mean, you know, what we're meant to say as an audience is, like, two old bachelors. Well, Peter, you and I know what two old bachelors is code for, right? Like. Of- Within that time. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You even get, you get a little bit, I mean, I think Higgins, in the film anyway, Higgins is singing that song while Pickering is on the phone trying to, I forget why, he's ringing up Scotland Yard. I don't remember what what the plot device is. It gets him on the phone. But he gets his old school chum on the phone in the middle of Why Can't a Woman Be More Like a Man? Colonel Pickering, yeah, calling for him. And as soon as, you know, his old school comes, Pinky! And you get this sense of like, (laughs) oh, they're, like, they were boys at school together. I mean, I know what they were getting up to. In the sure. English public school, sure. Pickering's never married, and he's calling up his old school friend. Like, yes, yeah, so I, you know, like I've read my books about Polari and the subculture <laughs> of London gay men in 1910. Like, I know what's yeah. going on there. I don't know if George Bernard Shaw or is like if that's what he's trying to do. Like, is, if is, is that what Shaw is presenting to us? I don't know, but I think that's probably the best way to understand both of these two men. Is it a certain yeah. degree they are they are queer queer men living in living a very privileged life in London. And they find this woman to catch and carry for them to kind of, you know, collect their stuff. They get to play dress up with. They get to, yeah, they get to dress her up in a way that they themselves cannot dress. But I mean, you know, like Pickering's really into that dress that he's putting on Eliza. <laughs> I mean, he thinks she, and then, you know, to a certain degree, the rain in Spain is kind of their one moment of like, well, shoot, maybe the three of us in our weird queer way can be a family. Like maybe. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. and, and then Eliza responds to the love that she feels from them in that moment with I could have danced all night, which is yes. I don't think I don't think that's a song about like, I'm in love with I mean, she never says who the he is that she's right. Like, I only know when he began to dance with me. Well, she's just danced with two men, both Pickering and Higgins. So who is yeah. the he for her? Right. Is it is it either of them? Is it just the sense of being invited into this world and having a place in this world? I mean, I think there's a lot happening in that song. I don't think it is, I'm in love with Henry Higgins. I think it's something much more complicated. But there is an image in My Fair Lady of, well, shoot, what would it look like if these three people, and I think it has to be the three of them, not Eliza and Henry, but if Pickering, Henry, and Eliza could all create a home together, what would that be? And it doesn't, you know, the second act of the show is the, you know, the the, the demolishing of that that image of, of perfection, right? What happens when you get everything you wanted? Well, it falls apart very quickly. Uh, yeah. But there is that that dream. That dream is there. Yeah. And and Henry Higgins says out loud, 
the most misogynist things that I think are uttered on the American musical stage uh, ever. And it's always just astonished me that women don't just walk out in horror from... <laughs> I think from, some do. I think that's maybe starting to happen a little bit. When we've, when we've played those clips in class, you know, for mostly for yeah. people who have seen the movie already. And like, but you can, I, every time we watch that clip of him saying those horrible things, I watch some of the faces of the women in the class like being like, oh my, like, how are we just sitting here listening to this? Like, in a way where, you know, like when this film came out, we were being invited to chuckle along with this character. And now we watch it and are like, oh my God, like, how did they get away with saying that? And how have we let him get away as being a figure of polite fun all these years? He is toxic. I mean, Higgins is toxic. Higgins is toxic. And in the most recent uh, Broadway revival uh, that Bartlett Schur did with Lauren Ambrose as uh, as Liza Doolittle, as I understand it, and I haven't seen the show, uh, although in one of our classes, I was in a small group with someone who had seen it, who confirmed this. At the end of the show, when Henry Higgins says to Eliza, Eliza, get my slippers. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, the last line of the show. It is in the in the in the Shaw play, yeah, in Pygmalion. Yeah, I think yeah. that is the last line. Uh, Lauren Ambrose playing Eliza Doolittle walks off the stage, mm-hmm. breaks the fourth wall, into the house, and out through the audience through the exit door. Yeah. In other words, I think symbolizing or demonstrating that she's not just leaving. Henry Higgins, she's leaving the whole She's leaving the play. Thing. Yeah, she is leaving the play. It's, it's a, I, in some ways, I think it's, I don't know how conscious this is, but it's almost an echo back to that original cover art, right? That there is yes. a George Bernard Shaw up in the sky who is marionetting this whole thing. And Lauren Ambrose, as Eliza Doolittle, is leaving that whole, co- like she is no longer an actress in a play. She is a yeah. woman who is no longer content to be a character in somebody else's drama. It's, I mean, in some ways, it's an indictment of the whole nature of musical theater um, and the way yes. that women have kind of, you know, been the either the kind of the, the pure muse or the complicated, you know, it's either a virgin or a whore for women in musical theater, right? Like, there's not a lot of complicated roles for women. They are yeah. often the, you know, the weird projection of a bunch of male fantasies because mostly yes. the songwriters in this in this era, right? Alan J. Lerner, Frederick Lowe, Richard Rogers, Oscar Hammerhead, these are all men, many of them gay men, projecting their fantasies of what it means to be a woman, their yearnings, their desires, you know, their, their various op- versions of the perfect woman onto these women actresses who have stories and voices. And, you know, it's like, so Lauren Ambrose walking out of the theater is almost an indictment of the entire nature of musical theater. Don't, women should not be, should not be made to suffer in this particular way at the hands of yeah. male creators who treat them as these kind of one-dimensional objects. And Henry Higgins, you know, the closest he comes to a to a love song is I've grown accustomed <laughs> to her face. It's the, I mean, it's the 11 o'clock number. <laughs> it's the 11 o'clock number. And it's, you know, it's so milk toast and uncommitted. Um, I, I, I used to hear her say, I'm, I'm so... I'm so used, so used to, to hearing her say, good morning. good morning, every day. Her joys, yeah. her, her frowns. Yeah. Her he, I mean, he does, to give uh. him credit, he does name 
some things, I mean, like, you know, I've learned, so what you can read the song in different ways. You can read it as I've learned how to pay attention to the person inside that dress, which is maybe the, right? Like her smiles, her frowns, her ups or downs, her joys, her woes, her whatever, you know, like, so at least there's a, there's an indication that like, oh, maybe he is, (laughs) is beginning to learn how to see her as a person, maybe. Or if you're being more cynical, which is kind of how I want to read this song, he's figured out like my whole existence depends on having somebody to fetch my slippers. And I've gotten used to this particular piece of property. I've grown accustomed to her face. She almost makes the day begin. I've grown accustomed to the tune that she whistles night and noon. Her smiles, her frowns, her ups, her downs are second nature to me now. Like breathing out and breathing in. I was serenely independent and content before we met. Surely I could always be that way again. And yet, I've grown accustomed to her looks, accustomed to her voice, accustomed the part of me that reads you know sort of henry henry higgins as sort of the ur type of the misogynist gay male guy yeah like he's figured out if i'm going to continue to live this life of leisure and do whatever the fuck i want every day i'm going to need eliza in my life to fetch and carry for me um yeah which is a which is a pretty depressing uh, moment of epiphany, if you like, because that's what the 11 o'clock number is meant to do, right? It's sort of the epiphany that gives our main character the energy that they need to bring this thing to a, to a wrap-up. So then the big question for My Fair Lady is what kind of an ending is this? If, is, is, is Higgins' epiphany, oh, there's a person in that, in that dress and I want to get to know that person. That's the beginnings of maybe a love story, maybe a redemption story. If the epiphany, though, is my privilege depends on having a servant and I've gotten used to this one, then you've right. got a very different ending, right? That, that means that in some ways you have to have Lauren Ambrose walking off the stage, right? right. It, the end needs to indict that epiphany, not, uh, not promote it, which is, I think, what George Bernard Shaw was trying to do, right? I like, he was, so. he was really insistent, like, at the end, Higgins should not, there was an actor who started playing it, like, Eliza would walk off stage, which is what Shaw wanted. She wanted, basically, he wanted Eliza to slam the door in his face, right? And there, the, the first actor to play Henry Higgins would then go to the window, and he would take this little, like, posy of flower and look lovingly down onto the street as if he was making eye contact with Eliza, and then throw the bouquet at her, and the audiences were charmed by this, right? Oh, yeah. he's, he's signaling to her that he wants her back, and Shaw was insane. How dare you turn a, turn my story about the social emancipation of women into a fucking romance? They are not right. meant to be together, <laughs> right? Like she slams the door in his face. That man is an asshole. Uh, she she cannot go back to him. She was insistent right. on this point. And Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe kind of, you know, they're writing in mid-50s America. They're writing a Broadway musical. They're used to the marriage trope, right? Like that's the whole, the whole nature of their genre is you set a male and a female protagonist at odds in the first scene. And the story we tell is how they overcome those odds and get married at the end. That's the trope they're working with. So Alan J. Lerner adds all these stage directions. I mean, basic word for word, what you get on the, you know, on the stage in that final scene is exactly as George Bernard Shaw wrote it, right? Eliza 
quotes herself in the record, I wash my face and hands before I come, I did. Uh, and then Higgins kind of realizes that she's there in the room with him. He's been listening to a disembodied voice, but she realizes Eliza's there. And he says, Eliza, where the devil is my slippers. So that's what we're working with. But Lerner's stage directions are really interesting. He adds stage directions to Shaw's script that really indicate for me what he is trying to say in this last moment, right? Eliza says, I wash my face and hands before I come. And Lerner's stage directions are Higgins straightens up, face front, joy on his face. Lerner says he would like to run with her, run to her, but he obviously doesn't know how. With contented comfort, he stretches back on the stool, leaning against the desk, and pulls his hat down over his eyes. He makes it so he once again cannot see her. He says, Eliza, where the devil are my slippers? And then Lerner's stage direction is Eliza smiles. She understands. The music of I Could Have Danced All Night reaches a crescendo in the orchestra as right. the curtain falls. Right. I mean, oh. it's as it's it's 180 degrees away from Shaw, right? right. Like Shaw right. wanted the door slamming in the face, but Lerner says she understands. And I wanna know, like, what does Alan J. Lerner think Eliza comes to understand? Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. Like that she can't do any better than this? That this is the best she's gonna find? I mean, like what the only is- thing that could be, The only thing that could be worse is if she went to the ottoman to the stool and got and his slippers for him yeah. and put his slippers on, on his feet. and then put her head on his, on his lap i mean it's yeah it's i mean like all of the all of the imagery is like they've set it all up and yeah. and depending on how you stage that final moment completely changes how we understand the nature of the story and these two people as 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 bartlett shaw did right you can you can all of shaw's stuff is there right like he is not offering to put his head on on her knee therefore she walks out of the theater like that's that's the shavian ending and the learner ending is you know it's all there too right she can go put it i mean i think this, in the movie i think doesn't she like take his slippers and hand them to him like you know basically agreeing to be domesticated by this guy which is a very mid-50s you know, like that tells you a lot about America in the mid fifties. Um, I think but- for all the, all the guys listening to this who are in relationship with women, if you watch my fair lady with them, go to the theater, watch the film, ask the women what they think the ending is about. Yeah. What does Eliza understand if she smiles right. at the end, right? If we're going to, you know, we're, we're doing the musical. So we're going to do Alan J. Lerner's stage directions, right? We're, we're giving yeah. the respect to the author. So we're going to observe this stuff, right? We're going to give Eliza a moment of smiling. What does she understand? Now we can stage as Bartlett Shaw did, right? I can imagine the Lauren Ambrose was probably grinning from, you know, like a Cheshire cat as she was walking off that stage. So yeah. we can, I mean, that's, that's a way of staging. She smiles, she understands. And what she understands yes. is this guy is toxic and I need to get out, out, of, his, right. out of his house, out of his life. Um, or we could she stage is, it. in fact, uh, or metaphorically anyway, snipping the, the strings of the, of the puppeteer. Yeah. If she walks off if stage. If she walks off stage. She is no longer under the control of Henry Higgins, yeah. who really is using her like a puppet, like a doll, mm-hmm. um, to prove a point, you know, in yeah. a bet that he has with his boyfriend, Colonel Pickering, about yeah. whether or not speech can actually define the way that one is is perceived, perceived in society. Yeah. And that, uh, and that's just the other, uh, another aspect of this extraordinary show, troubling. I mean, one of my favorite scenes uh, when I've seen this live or in the theater is in the second, second act when the curtain goes up 
and in uh, Cecil Beaton, isn't it the original mm-hmm, costume, the costumer? Yeah, did it uh, at the at the horse race at the Ascot. yeah the Ascot scene. Oh God, what an amazing! Everybody scene. in black and yep. white. Yeah, it's uh, from an artistic and aesthetic point of view. It's, it's magnificent. Stunning. It's magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. Yeah. Oh, and they sing that Ascot Gavotte song. So like they're they're a complete posed Straight. picture. All yeah. the only thing moving is their mouth. It's I mean it's, yeah. it's very yeah it's an amazing it's an amazing number, but. Underneath the beauty of the aesthetics, I think there is uh, an indictment of the emotional uh, vacancy of Edwardian England. Everybody looks alike. In order to be in society, everybody dresses alike. Now, I know it's an over-exaggeration. Of course, there were characters. But at a certain level in society, people were, the women were, you know, foisted into these gowns that created a different figure the men with top hats and uh, starched collars and so forth this is a very regimented world that is being shown and what makes eliza delightful at the at the ball that follows that scene is that she breaks all the conventions while completely ascribing to all of them Right. Yes. She, yes, she, yes. she has the, she has the accent down. She's got the right clothes, everything about her. So most of them don't really pick up on the fact that what she's saying is low class cockney, you know, like it, she tells a story yes. about her aunt, right? Like who, yes. you know, he like did her in with a hat. He pin. did, he did her in. And like some of them He's kind of, done like, oh. her in. and, and, and what Freddie says, is, oh, it's the new slang. You do it so well. Like basically recognizing, right? Like she's completely out of her league, but she's doing it brilliantly. He falls in love with her for that reason. Right. Yeah. Um, but most of the people, they're just kind of, they don't really quite know what to make of her because she is, you know, she's, she's code switching, right? She's, is perfectly performing the role of an upper-class woman, except that what she is saying underneath that accent, so in some ways it proves it proves Higgins' point, right? I mean, teaching right. her to speak correctly to a certain level does collapse the class distinctions, but Eliza yeah. later comes back, right, and argues against that point, right? I think she says to Higgins' mother, I learned from Colonel Pickering, you know, it's not how a person speaks that defines whether or not they are, tr- what defines a lady is how people treat her. I will always be a lady to Colonel Pickering because he treats me like a lady. I'm always going to be a gutter snipe to Henry Higgins. It's not how I speak because that's how he treats me. So she has this really interesting kind of, and that's pure Shaw, right? Like, you know, basically setting up the idea that if we could just collapse dialect differences, we could collapse cap, 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 could collapse class differences. Class, yeah. yeah in some ways, yeah. My Fair Lady, as Bernard Shaw, I think is writing it, is in some ways a direct repudiation of that idea. It's not about how you speak. It's about how we treat one another. That's what exactly. That's what defines class. And when you see, when you think of this play, and it ran just a little shy of three thousand performances in its original run on Broadway, and was a very successful motion picture, and has been produced around the world and by theater companies, um, uh, amateur and professional. I mean, it is. Uh, it's one of the most robust pieces of work, but putting it in its time of 1957 mm-hmm. um, and the kind of gender, the very prescribed gender roles in, in the United States and in Canada, women being the at-home moms, yeah. uh, the dads having the freedom of being out in the workplace. We're at our home just currently moving through. We didn't see Mad Men the first time mm. through. But, oh, yeah. So you're getting a deep dive into oh, the world of boy. And 60s I know America. it's over-exaggerated, but... Mm. Well, I don't, I mean, uh, the sexual, the sexual politics, I don't think all that much. 
I mean, right. I think Madden is kind of seen as like, nope, that's that's kind of the way that's it was. Kind of the way it was. Yeah, yeah. it feels very foreign and, to us because we're, you know, yeah. in some ways, like it's 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 unsaid. In some ways, this is the experience of people watching My Fair Lady, right? And and thinking exactly. like, how did they get away with saying this? And yet we know they did because some of us were sitting in the movie theater when we watched it the first time, and we didn't, you know, like nothing that Higgins is saying. You know, maybe you wonder like, oh, is like that's a little cruel, you know? But not to the level of that's toxic. That's horrible that's, that's yeah. awful yeah right. i don't i don't i don't think audiences in the mid-century really understood the degree to which right how could they they were living it it's like they'll say the same thing about us i'm sure right like we're breathing the air we breathe we don't have the view of 50 years in the future to understand the ways in which we're so deeply complicit in all kinds of right. injustice um, yeah so hopefully they'll take mercy on us in 50 years as we try to take mercy on them now um, and if yeah. you trace the history of feminism uh particularly in the U.S. with its early glimmerings in the early 1960s and its full flowering by about 1968 and, uh, and in the life of the church, the ordination of women and how deeply divisive and controversial that was. I mean, and still is, my, yeah. and still is. And to my shame and horror, when I was a young kid in the 1960s and our servers guild, the acolytes at church, which had been all male, in fact, only boys were allowed beyond the communion rail, only yeah. males were allowed beyond the communion rail. I mean, I, I'm ashamed to say I voted in favor of keeping the prohibition of women, mm. of girls out of the altar guild, out of, out of the service. service guild. Altar guild was fine. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. They can, they can clean up afterwards. Yeah, they can fetch exactly. our slippers, but don't let them, don't let them into the chancel. Yeah. There was this deep complicity with with church and society in mm. the oppression um, of women, the dehumanization, the second class nature, and uh, My Fair Lady reflects that world. Yeah. Uh, I remember seeing it when I was a kid, and Henry Higgins was kind of an amusing character. Right now, I look at it. And as you say, he's toxic. He's toxic. He's horrible. He and 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 yet still he gets the cleverest. I mean, you know, like his his numbers are brilliant, delivered by a, an actor who knows how to kind of do that very I mean, it's it's sort of pre-Hamilton, right? Like this is almost this is a patter song, uh, written for Rex right. Harrison, but they're you know, it's like they're very quick. It's all he's almost rapping, he's spitting words very quickly, very intelligently. They're clever lyrics. They're I mean, so it, it's hard even today. Well, I, I shouldn't say it's hard for me. I should I'll speak for myself to not a little bit be charmed by this character. He is so witty and smart and, you know, to a certain degree kind of clueless. So you do end up, I mean, at least I do, kind of end up to a certain degree, like not rooting for him, but longing for, you know, he's not just right. a villain, right? Like he is, and maybe, you know, I'm saying this as a, as a gay man who is in some ways inadvertently the inheritor of a lot of these scripts that gay men have gotten over the years about women and our relationship yeah. to women. Um, so I recognize, I would say, even some of my own baggage in a character like Higgins. Um, yeah. There's a piece of me that yearns for his redemption. And there's also right. a piece of me that's like, no, like the redemption in this story is Eliza's. That's what George Bernard Shaw is trying to do. He's writing a story about women. This, My Fair Lady is about women. It's not about, it's not about men. Well, Pygmalion um, is anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, his play. Because I think the audience in 1957 and right through to the Audrey Hepburn film were longing for the love story. Yeah. They were it, it, just so deeply ingrained in the nature of musical theater. Although 
you know, when you think about it and just going back over our Rogers and Hammerstein time, the love stories in Rogers and Hammerstein are all problematic at yeah, some point. Every single and one. <laughs> Curly and Larry is. Curly and uh, Lori. <laughs> Curly and Larry. Are, that's a different love story. Oops. That was the gay version. <laughs> um, the gay version. Certainly Billy Bigelow and Julie Jordan, uh-huh. Nellie Forbush and Abel DeBeck. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the, the king captain and maria yeah I mean, there's a lot of age differences there's a lot of power differentials yeah yeah, yeah. and that's i mean it's not just Reginald and hammerstein it's just about every male female coupling in musical theater from 1943 down to the present in some ways i mean we're still bumping up against these tropes um yeah. old old traditions die hard we're still bumping up against these traditions in church right the, the roman catholic church just last week allowed girls to be servers last week Last so, I mean, ago. like we're, you know, like that happened in the Anglican church, you know, in, in your lifetime, but yes. quite a while ago, uh, but, you know, so we're in different places on some of this stuff. And we know, you and I both know, our church has got a long way to go. The Anglican church has by no means uh, solved this issue, right, about women's leadership, uh, what it means to, you know, even, even if you can, you know, even if you ordain them at the highest level, are we still basically a kind of misogynist culture that we're asking women to, you know, kind of accede to in some ways, um, there's yeah. all kinds of issues that we're just starting to tap into in terms of power and hierarchy and, you know, who's up there controlling the strings of the marionette? Is that God? Is that patriarchy? Like, what, what is, is that white supremacy? Like, what, what is the thing that's keeping us from a kind of, uh, the kind of, the, the image that's embodied in the reign in Spain, right? Where, like, men and women can dance together, can, can be fully themselves in this way that isn't necessarily sexualized, but it's also not not sexualized, right? Like they're, they're dancing, their bodies in space. They're taking pleasure in one another's bodies. Yeah, maybe it's two queer old, you know, like closeted guys and a woman who's bucking up against them, but they're and dancing castanets. together. I mean, like what a, what a great song. It's such, yeah. a, it's such a beautiful moment at the center of this very problematic, toxic play. Um, but there's a promise there. I don't know, like I really wanna, I wanna hold to that as this kind of beautiful promise of a, of a family, if you like, that doesn't, yeah that doesn't subscribe to any of the, or at least to very few of the really problematic strictures that we are constantly fighting in this, in this culture in terms of what it, what it means to be a family. Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking about the kind of warning that uh, I voiced right at the beginning of, of, this, of, this, uh, of this podcast and wondering whether it might be a very interesting project in the church for, uh, in churches and in community groups for women and men to watch a film or see a production of it together Mm -hmm. and then sit down afterwards and listen to each other about what they saw. I think for lots of men, myself included, if uh, hearing women's actual visceral experience of this text, the way that women are depicted could be revelatory for Mm men um, and also very empowering for women to say, Thank God I can finally speak a truth about this thing. Yeah. This is this is uh, horrific. This is a, a text of terror uh-huh. in some uh-huh. ways, as Philip Phyllis Tribble, the great biblical, the great biblical scholar, yeah. writes about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, w- I mean, to, to make it a little more personal, I mean, I, I don't know if this has been your experience. You know, you and I talked about My Fair Lady and the kind of drag elements from it. You know, way several months ago before we started this project. But having now taught My Fair Lady in groups of mostly women, right? Like, and I would say both My Fair Lady and Carousel have uh, really sharpened my sense 
of, you know, it's not just a matter of understanding historical context or, yeah, this is problematic, but aren't they great shows? Like, no, I, I would say that my sense of these shows have done real damage to people. Um, yeah. And in some ways, it's interesting to me that it's, it's mostly, it's been women in these classes that have said to us, you've just destroyed my favorite musical, right? To me, that in itself is a, a voice of the harm that this show has done. Right. Like seduced women of a certain age, in, you know, into this. I mean, and I and, and me, too. Right. Like, I mean, it's a great musical. My Fair Lady is a it is the perfect musical from a it structural. The, the music musical. is brilliant. The characters are fascinating. Yeah. It's it's got great costume. It's got a great chorus. I mean, it's a it's a great show. And part of the, the pain that it has wrought, I think, is has seduced all of us into laughing at something that we should have been horrified by and now yeah. are horrified by. So to hear different, mostly women, kind of wrestling with what do we do with the show that we grew up loving, and now we look yes. at it and say, oh my God, like, I've been spending my whole life dealing with this bullshit. What do we, like, what, 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 and, and that, that's really sharpened my sense of what it means to teach these, these musicals and how we teach them Absolutely. and what kinds of yeah. conversations we're interested in kind of bringing out and, and what kind of sensitivity I think I need to be careful about teaching the show as a cisgendered man who happens yes. to be white and what I can't see about this stuff until my sisters in Christ are really clear about saying, this is what I see in this thing. And I, you know, like it, it has changed the way that I, I teach the show. I think for the better. I think, I think so. Better. I think so. I mean, I, I'm much more aware of, as you just, as you, as you said, and, and I think, you know, I think what's appealing to it is it's uh, what keeps it, what keeps it engaging it and probably, letting us suspend our critical judgment is this Cinderella rags to riches story that here is someone who is in low estate, who is raised up in a kind of uh, exalted way into a world of privilege and affluence. And that story deeply appeals, uh, deeply appealed to people in the 1950s, where that really was the project in the suburbs. You lift yourself out of the poverty of the Depression and the deprivation of the Second World War, and you can, you know, go to the nice parties and you can have the nice clothes. I mean, I think that is a very seductive Mm -hmm. element Mm -hmm. that, uh, that is at the heart of it. Yeah, and in some ways, a very a very American story to sort of take a a very kind of biting British satire and turn it into a very American sort of like anybody can do anything, just follow your dreams, girl. Like what a what a a piece of American mythology. And I think the film does that even more than the stage play. Yeah, I mean, seeing you know you're uh, you're uh, you're down in your luck, you're selling flowers in Covent Garden, but you. Within you, there is Audrey Hepburn, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, arguably the most beautiful woman in the world. Yeah, in her, certainly in, in 19, whatever that was, 65, 66. And, yeah. and she sold tickets. I mean, part of the success of the film was everybody wanted to see Audrey Hepburn. And, yeah. uh, you know, and she was she was stunning she was stunning stunning absolutely less, less successful as and i would say this is probably true of julie andrews too less successful as the the cockney flower girl right like yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like actresses who play eliza like you that's it's that's a that's a that's a lot to be able to do both of those things convincingly i feel like well, you either are more convincing as the duchess or you're more convincing as the flower girl. right it's but maybe that's my trans- misogyny i don't know like that's a that's I thing to, well it's a story of transformation yeah. And stories of transformation, whether it's Beauty and the Beast, 
uh, I mean, stories of transformation are very much what musical theater is about. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. this one, you get to actually see the transformation. It's not just psychological. Right. Yeah. Um, it's a physical transformation. But, and I think to your point, I don't think the transformation is complete because in order for it to be complete, Henry Higgins needs to be transformed. He needs to be changed. And clearly it's Shaw's uh, strong impulse. And I think it's, it's, it needs, it's there in my fair lady as well, especially in the more recent production by Bartlett Sher, that he is not. Yeah. And, and that, and therefore it's a tragedy at its yeah. heart. That, yep. Which is going back to the original Ovid story, right? Like Pygmalion is a tragedy. It's a cautionary yeah. tale. It's not a romance. It's not, not a, a romance. romance. Yeah. yeah. And we need those cautionary tales. I think that's really, that's a really interesting way of kind of thinking about it. So it is the great learner. The, yeah. The great learner, the great mid-century, the most successful show on Broadway on its time. I mean, this thing is, yeah, yeah. it's a behemoth. It's a big thing. And yeah. it is a great show. That's the thing, right? Like yeah. that's where I, that's where I, you know, at the end of class when we would we'd have these women come up to us and say, Oh, you've just ruined my fair lady for me. I would want to say, like, <laughs> I mean, like, I don't I at a certain level, like probably we have, you know, like yes, maybe we have. Like maybe as a woman raised in 1960 in America and Canada, like maybe you can't watch this. I you know, I don't know. Like I'm, you know, I'm a gay guy who grew up in the you know 1980s. So I I I'm gonna watch it differently. Maybe it should be ruined for me and it isn't. Uh, I wanna say though, boy, it's still an amazing piece of art. And amazing yeah. actors have played those roles. And there is still a lot to love about My Fair Lady. In yeah. some ways, like, I think we can do that better once we've really kind of forced ourselves to look at how damaging a show like My Fair Lady really can be, potentially. Um, yeah. Because the and Bible is that way, too, right? Like, exactly. Boy, talk about a cultural and artifact that has been a text of terror for so many people. And I think, you know, the cautionary tale really is not to become accustomed to the world that it presents just yeah. to turn Henry Higgins 11 o'clock number on its head. Uh-huh. Um, uh, we can't become accustomed to a world where men control women, where women are not given agency uh, to become the wonderful children of God that they are, where the way you speak says how you can fit into society. I mean, I think becoming accustomed, no becoming critical mm-hmm. of that world, yes, and to the extent that it raises those questions and provokes the kind of conversation we've just had, uh, it continues to be uh, an important piece yeah. in the canon of musical theater. What a and and then it. we go out and we dance all night. <laughs> I only know. I only know. <laughs> when, when he, he began, began to dance with me, I could have danced. I used to have a plate hanging on my wall. And this is actually a little bit of misogyny, I suppose, too. It was a picture of a very pregnant woman holding her belly. And it said, I should have danced all night. <laughs> I love that plate. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, well, okay. My fair lady will yeah. pick up something next. That's next right. Time we're with you. To try to sit it down. Sleep, sleep, I couldn't sleep tonight, not for all the jewels in the crown. I could have danced all night, I could have danced all night, and still have begged for more. I could have. Sp- and done a th-
The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.